So in general, when we look at how the body processes information, right, and how the body processes um, the uprising of sensation or emotion, what we can typically detect when we, you know, check our, like our own internal system is that uh, the moment we start feeling things, it's typically layers of sensation, right? And often, not always, but often the first thing that starts showing up is unpleasant stuff, right? Most people, when they are asked to start moving and feeling whatever they can feel and move that, the first thing most people feel is a bit of pain or something that's a bit stuck or a bit of tension or some kind of contraction. More often than not, that's the case, right? And it's because there's layers of information stored in the body at all times. And typically, when we start embodying, meaning when we start becoming sensitive to what's happening in the body, it's always happening, but we're not always aware of it, what, what shows up isn't that great to begin with. So there's a tendency to want to kind of move out or skip over what's not so pleasant often and get to the good stuff. And that's, you know, that's a normal tendency. Human beings want to feel good, obviously. Um, but there's also something to be said about allowing the other things to be felt so that you're able to um, gain, let's say, a full education on the emotions that are available. So that's kind of the premise when we do nonlinear. One of the, you know, there's, there's more to it, but one of the aspects is that we train ourselves to have what is called interoception, which is an, a, a fairly accurate and up-to-date, meaning moment-by-moment, moment insight into our own landscape, which is comprised of physical sensation, emotion, and the accompanying thoughts. So... You do that for a while, then comes hopefully a moment where you start feeling good. Not always, but often. And then often when you start feeling good, there comes that moment, like you said, where you want to kind of suspend. So that said, there's a, and I'm making quotation marks here, there's a danger in doing so. And that is that that feeling of good is the moment where you want to freeze the experience, which is and one of the ways to freeze an experience is to stop moving. And of course, the freeze state in the human body is a, is a state of a certain kind of a locking down um, and coping with whatever sensations there are so that they don't get bigger or so they don't um, endanger us. So freeze often is the moment where we kind of hunker down when something unpleasant happens so that we don't have to feel the fullness of it or so we can cope and still function. Or if we can't, let's say, move out of the situation, it allows us to stay there and not get overwhelmed. And so that freeze state typically is applied to intense emotion. Now, the problem is when we have intensely good emotions or intense bliss states, we also tend to want to freeze it, which means that they can't actually grow 
and develop and deepen either. So by keeping one part of you moving, even in an intense bliss state, you're training the body to be able to move at any intense state, which will then allow you to move through any free state, negative as well as positive. And, it, and so if the, the state is a really intensely blissful state, you should be able to just move a little finger and not lose that, right? But if you lose it when it's that blissful, there's a good chance that that's your cap on bliss meaning that's your upper limit on bliss, and then you can't have any more. And of course, that upper limit is useful when it's a negative emotion, uh, but by training to be able to continually uh, washing out and releasing and moving on what's happening, you'll get really good at also getting out of negative free states. So that's the whole idea behind always keeping one part of the body moving is that the body starts relying on the ability to just move things through. And then we are not um, hindered in our ability to process negative and we're also not capped in our ability to experience positive. When we look at how the nervous system functions, we're of course looking at the highest value in the human body being survival. I mean, that's to be expected, right? We, want, need, we need to live. So what that means is our entire system is essentially uh, geared toward survival. And there's many layers to that. One layer is that our human, like the human brain, and the, the, the human experience is very energy efficient, meaning we, the body will always use the energy where it's needed most and pull it from where it's not needed because there's a finite amount of energy available. And then the second, so that allows us not only survival, but also thriving as in creating new, you know, habits and patterns and experiences. But then when it comes to actual survival, the body essentially does, and the brain do not know the difference between a real threat and a perceived threat. So, any threat to the system is considered a mortal threat. And so there's an entire system of um, reactions that allow us to survive. And the ones that most people know is fight and flight, right? where essentially when you come to a threshold where it's considered that you need to live, um, your rational thought gets overridden by your nervous system's willingness to survive. So rational thought goes down, the ability to run or fight goes up. That's super useful if some, you know, massive creature, Australia doesn't have massive creatures, right? You don't have bears. Yeah, but wave kangaroos typically don't come knocking at their yurt door. But if they did, or some gigantic Komodo dragon tries getting in here, right? All of us would have a massive spike in adrenaline, and that massive spike in adrenaline then produces a very specific set of circumstances, right? Your heart rate speeds up, the, the, the adrenaline makes it so you breathe fast enough so that every part of you gets oxygenated. The oxygen gets sent to the extremities so that you can run as fast as you can or you can fight as fast as you can. Interestingly enough, anybody who's ever had a panic attack knows that your 
vision becomes very, very focused. Right? You get kind of tunnel vision as a means of focusing on the threat. And uh, you have barely any um, rational ability. Right? Your rational ability and your thinking ability goes down. That's super useful. Not so useful if your threat is a perceived threat, meaning extreme mental stress or things like that. Conflict at work, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop, all of those things. There's another version of survival, and that's freeze. And freeze is a really interesting one, because just think back at the olden days when tribes of peoples would, uh, you know, traverse the savanna or live in caves or things of that nature. Often what would happen is some intruders would arrive or some animals would arrive, and a part of the tribe would go out and fight them, and the rest, typically women and children, would have to hide. So what do you have to do if tribes or animals come through and you have to hide in that tall grass? Right? The opposite of fight or flight. You have to essentially immobilize. And so freeze is the, is the mechanism of immobilization. The first thing that you notice in freeze is your lower body gets heavy. If you're sensitive, you can almost tell your legs and feet feel somewhat numb and very, very heavy. You hunker down. Your breath actually gets slow. Your heartbeat gets slow. So the opposite of fight or flight happens. Um, and that's very interesting sometimes when, and, and I think we have a few people in here who will know that from their medical training. Right? Uh, I have a friend who is an emergency room doctor, and she says that often uh, when, when doctors are not trained properly, they don't know when somebody is in, is in freeze. They think they're actually fine, but they're actually frozen, and they're their you know, calm pulse and low blood pressure or, or normal blood pressure isn't a sign that they're okay. It's actually a sign that they're frozen. And it's sometimes very tricky to tell. But that mechanism allows you to be essentially, uh, and you notice then also, you see this in people, right? You get flat affect is what they call it, meaning the face doesn't move much. Well, that's useful. If you're in the, you know, in the bushes hiding, you want to be as quiet. You don't want to have uh, you know, the metabolism that makes you have to pee or eat. You don't want to have your, you know, your face twitch or things of that nature happen. So freeze is super useful. Freeze is really fine for that kind of moment, but it's of course not a place to be in. And the problem with freeze is that freeze feels okay, right? And this is once again why we do this. Freeze feels okay, because in freeze, there isn't much happening, and you don't actually feel much. You think you're okay. Often you hear people go, wow, I'm taking this rather well. It's like, uh, are you, or are you frozen, right? And, and so that, that state of freeze is a freeze in which we can't often tell if we're really okay. We feel really zen, or even, you know, like almost expanded, because that's part of the mechanism. And so as a general rule, we just always assume that freeze could be lurking somewhere, and we don't want freeze in, in the context of training the body to be able to move and process, which is what nonlinear is about. 
So that's why we're always, you know, assuming the worst and assuming that the feeling of feeling good is freeze. It might not be, obviously, but we're essentially going here, body. If you ever get in freeze, we're training you to do this. And then the positive aspect is if you're having bliss and you're capping it by not being able to go further, then this will give you expanded bliss states. Sometimes when you hit a layer of something, stored trauma or just stress and so on, you hit that free state. You hit that layer of free state. So that's why we keep on moving. How can you differentiate between a, a moment of, of stillness and peace and a moment of freeze? Um, well, keeping on moving something is one of those those moments is one of those ways of differentiating. Other ways, sometimes you hit freeze in nonlinear, and it feels like everything just shuts off. You pop out. You're like, huh, like that. And you feel like you're back to normal in a certain sense, or you feel very numb, or you suddenly get very bored. Things like that. You think, oh, nothing's happening. Oh, this is. I'm suddenly very bored now. I'm done now. That kind of thing. And sometimes you're done, or you don't have to keep going. But if you keep going, if you keep doing nonlinear, then you keep on moving. And very often, underneath that layer of of freeze, is what's next. You know? And then eventually, the body can release that freeze, that bracing, if you like. Eventually, in its own time. With nonlinear, you let it happen in its own time, so we don't force it. There are other modalities where you might force that, more cathartic. You thrust people through their freeze, you know, through the numbness or the bracing into what's underneath. And then they, you know, there's like a lot of this you know, kind of thing. People think, wow, I'm getting really good value for money. You know? <laughs> and it's very dramatic and exciting. And everyone's, you know, so wow. But the problem is it's difficult to integrate that. And you can sort of reliving it, actually. You can re-traumatize it, deepen it even more into the system. If you thrust like that, certain kind of breath works or trauma works, they, they, that's their way of doing it create a big cathartic moment. Everyone feels like they're getting somewhere. But what's the integration? You know? mm -hmm. So with, that's why nonlinear, we have this sort of more body-led approach. Mm -hmm. You just keep on moving. When the body's ready, it opens or it goes there. And if it's a peaceful state, a little bit of movement won't disturb that. You breathe, after all. You can breathe in, in the most peaceful meditation. You still have respiration of some sort. You know, maybe not you know, Nirodha Samapati, but other than that, you know, complete cessation of bodily function, which some people think they can do. Yes. For up to seven that's days. That's a different story. Yeah, yeah, never mind <laughs> that. Um, that's, you know, probably not going to happen in the middle of nonlinear. No. But, um, yeah, so that's why we keep on moving, you know, in that modality anyway. And just so that you know, I've been doing nonlinear for over 30 years, and I still on occasion have to remind myself to move. Right, because you always hit certain things. And um, I sometimes have moments where I just like, I'm like, I can't be bothered, right? You know, like you just like, <sighs> yeah. And I still have to go to, in my mind, okay, keep a part of me moving. And very often when I do that, then I come to what is underneath. Because one of the, of the wonderful and also infuriating aspects of embodiment, of any kind of a proper embodiment work is it never ends, right? Because it's a new moment every time you step back into a practice. And even if you've been doing it forever and ever and ever, life happens. And so life constantly feeds your practice and your practice constantly um, interacts with life, so to speak. So it's important 
to kind of train basic mechanisms. Uh, and you know that because it sounds like you've been meditating, you know, I mean, I don't know how long, but a, a while, right? So you know that when you sit down, your body knows what to do, right? You can rely on the fact that regardless of what happens, when you put yourself in a meditation posture, something kicks in. And the same is true with nonlinear. At some point, it's not that conscious anymore. You just know it happens. But ever so often, you'll have to go, okay, I keep on moving. You know, so that, that's just, it's a conditioning of sorts. Yeah. Yes, we all have relationship pattern, right? It's, it's a very unpleasant realization when when you come to the point where you understand that whom you attract and whom you're attracted to is a direct result of your earlier imprints, right? It's one of those shitty things to realize uh, when you kind of go, wow, hmm, right? But it can't be avoided, meaning there's layers of um, experience that go into whom we fall in love with or whom we're attracted to. And so the first layer of experience is, um, of course, you know, this is, has been flogged. This is a dead horse that has been flogged for a few years now. Everybody and their dog is uh, peddling attachment theory these days. So, you know, so it's considered that that's one of the first influences that uh, is how you were attached or not attached to your uh, mother or to your parents. But that's really only a small part. Um, and that, of course, you know, attachment can be worked with, meaning that's not a life sentence by any means. Uh, and it's also, I think, it's not as big of a deal as people make it. Because it's a very cool and easy lens to do therapy with or coaching with. So everybody jumps on it. But it's really... It's a small fraction of what plays in, really. What's a much bigger fraction of, of experience is your relationship to the people who raised you in the context of how you viewed um, love being given to you. And that's a whole other uh, you know, bit of uh, exploration because how love was given to you isn't it's not objective, it's subjective, meaning it's how you as a small child have perceived uh, the adults in your life and how they reacted to you. And some of that, if we would have filmed your parents interacting with you, we could pinpoint by seeing it, right? They maybe praised you only when you um, performed well somewhere, or that we can tell, but there's also, the way we perceive our parents um, based on the fact that we're fairly, um, let's say, self-centered as children, right? We, all, we are the center of the universe, so to speak, to us. And so everything that happens around us happens because of us, which is why often you hear that people blame themselves for their parents' breaks, breakups and things like that. We can't but think that we're the center of our universe. So how our parents treat us, uh, isn't, it's not an objective thing. It's how we perceive them treating us. And based on that, we develop a kind of an imprint of what we think love is. 
So for instance, if um, let's say you were only given attention you know, when you acted out, then to you um, getting that kind of negative stern attention equals love. That's your love home base. Now then you grow up and you go, I don't want to be with somebody who's abusive. Right? I'm going to choose somebody who's really gentle and wonderful. And you choose somebody who's not that. And then four years in, they turn into exactly that. Why? Because somewhere underneath, either you know they have that because you can smell it. It smells like home. Or the even less pleasant realization is you made them into the thing that you want so you feel loved. And that's a real shit moment in time <laughs> when you realize that you are back there, right? So that all said, th there's that, right? And we always laugh about this because you hear these people go, oh, I went to this party and there was this guy at the buffet and we locked eyes and we started talking and it was like, we knew each other from a past life. It's a classic California thing, probably some parts of Australia too, right? And everybody goes, oh yeah. No, that's your childhood. <laughs> yeah. It's your childhood imprint who you just, you can smell it. It's somewhere in you, right? So there's that fun, right? So then the next thing that happens is that then of course you have relationships and then those relationships also form imprints. So if you weren't already, you know, fucked enough, so to speak, now other things start happening, right? You get somebody, you know, tells you you don't look the way they want you to look or, you know, like all of that kind of stuff. And you get more and more, you know, twisted into being something to get love, right? So put that to rest for a moment, right? Then we have a few relationships and we realize those imprints and their fallouts. And then typically that's the moment we start doing some work, right? And then you can go, yes, that's my imprint or that's, you know, what I got from my parents. And this is, that's all good and nice. But you also have to understand that just the fact that you're attracted to this person means that in their core, they could turn out exactly the way you don't want them to turn out. <laughs> right? And, and that's just something you have to live with in the sense that you never relax your vigilance. And that's not a bad thing because when you relax your vigilance, you always hear in these neo-tantric circles, the, I will surrender to his great masculine. That's a, that's a recipe for being blindsided, gaslit, or otherwise manipulated, right? You want to keep that vigilance going, right? It's a new relationship. Maybe you can trust him. Maybe you can't trust him, right? As you, you're saying, it looks like everything looks, you know, um, what do they say? It, it walks like a chicken, talks like a chicken. It probably is a chicken, right? <laughs> but you don't know that yet. And so by actually allowing yourself to have those feelings and not um, 
leaving yourself behind for the sake of some new growth, you can actually integrate those parts a lot better. So instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this. What's wrong with me? I'm still fucked. I need more therapy. <laughs> I need to work this through. You could say, oh, I've worked on a lot of these things. I have good tools. I'm not blindsided by these things, but they will never completely go away because they won't. Imprints never completely go away. You can all, the best you can do is identify them so that they lose their knee-jerk power over you. Right? But they're yours to keep and they're not bad. They're just yours to keep. And then you can go, is this just old stuff or is this a warning? So the integration is essentially, exactly, the integration is to go, I know where my weak spots are, I have tools, I have trusted advisors, but also I'm not going to, to sell myself out for the sake of believing it's, it's, it all is fine. And Usually, once you kind of acknowledge that within yourself, that these are actually good mechanisms and that your lack of trust isn't a bad thing, but it's a prudent thing, then your system can relax. It doesn't have to constantly warn you, right? Because that's the, that's the way the system works. The system, the internal survival system goes, potential danger, potential danger. And if you go, yeah, 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 it's not happening. So it, it has to get louder. Well, if you go, okay, this might be something to pay attention to, but I have the tools and I have the people to check it with, then things can settle down. And then you can come at the relationship from the place of, yeah, I have baggage, you have baggage, um, and uh, I'm aware of what it's about, and ever so often I'd slip up a bit, That's you know that, that will happen, but I'm not gripped by it. So when it happens, I can work with it, and I can talk to people about it, but I'm also reserving the right to, when I have those feelings, just check a bit more carefully. And then you're keeping yourself safe and you're not going into some deluded, this is all different than any other time it's ever been, because it probably isn't. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm saying that is no human is perfect. And when you consider what it takes to be in relationship with someone, there will be um, inevitable slip-ups, disagreements, moments where you can trust. In longer relationships, you will go through phases where you'll hate each other and then you'll love each other and then you can't stand each other but you still love each other and then you don't want to have sex ever again and then you do it again and it's amazing. And all of that happens because it's this ebb and flow of stuff. And that's the integration, is not to work so hard for this to go away, mm -hmm. but work enough so it's available to you, and then actually just relax and let things happen. So essentially what you're saying is, I can trust my body's wisdom, but my body essentially is telling me I should have sex with this person, and then I find out that's not good for my 
part of my relationship status, right? So I think the most important thing to know about that is that what makes a relationship good is not necessarily what makes sex good. And so you can absolutely trust your body to be attracted, sexually attracted to the person with whom you have the best sex. You can trust that. And uh, that often though gets us into trouble when it comes to our lives. Because as pretty much everybody who's nodding right now knows is that whom we have the best and most amazing erotic experiences with is not typically not the person we end up with in, relation, in long-term relationships. And it's certainly not the easiest road, even if you end up with that person in a relationship. It's typically quite rocky. And the more exciting sexually it is, the more um, disagreeable it is in the relationship, right? And uh, yes, and, and so the, the short answer is you can absolutely trust your body to know where the best sex is to be had. <laughs> so what makes a relationship good is not what makes sex good. So I'll tell you about the sex part first since that's what you were asking. So what makes sex good is essentially somebody who is as opposite of you as possible. That's what makes sex good. So essentially, the less you know about somebody and the more they are different from who you are and the less you have in common on a very fundamental level, meaning the less you have in common, as in you don't live together necessarily, you're far away from each other, um, you have totally different interests, you don't have the same friends, um, you know, you come maybe even from different cultural or ethnic backgrounds, all of those kind of things, all of that's to the body super exciting. Because in the sexual domain, the, you know, you, you, you always hear this, opposites attract is, is kind of the, 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 the thing that really, the tenet that's uh, to be applied. So opposites attract makes for good sexual spark. That's why we sometimes talk about erotic friction, which is a term from my lineage. And erotic friction is exactly what it sounds like. There's a lot of friction, not only of the sexual kind, but also of the contentious, um, not getting along on a day-to-day -day basis kind. But it's hugely erotic because it's opposite poles, and the further the poles are apart, sometimes people call it polarity for that reason, the further the, the poles are apart, the greater the arc of attraction and the stronger the kind of friction and with the friction, the heat, the hotness is. So when people first get together, what makes sex usually so exciting is you don't know that person's body. You don't even know what they you know, taste or smell like. You don't know much about them yet. You're finding these things out in between having sex, essentially. That's typically how it goes for most people. It's like this massive phase of you have sex, you talk about stuff. You have more sex, you talk about stuff. And, you know, eventually you get to know that person. You do find commonalities. And when you start finding commonalities, something else kicks in. And that is the principle of relationship. So the principle of good sex is opposites attract. 
the principle of relationship is birds of a feather stick together. So what makes a long-term relationship possible is when you have a lot of commonality, when there's a lot of sameness. And so sameness or commonality means you agree on things that, that make a relationship work. So that would be um, common values, uh, it can be food, religion, uh, hobbies, uh, likes, dislikes when it comes to travel, money, uh, children or no children, you know, like all of those things that are essentially commonalities, being on the same page, pulling on the same end of the rope, you know, you, you hear all of these kind of terms. That's what makes a relationship good. And the more you have in common and the better you can communicate, which is also a relationship tool or a relationship skill, the better the relationship, the more harmonious and essentially resonant you will be with somebody. So great resonance, closeness, um, you know, being in agreement creates this kind of long-term relationship that you sometimes see. In America, we always joke about the fact, you know, there's these couples who they, I don't know if this exists in Australia, maybe in Canada they do that too. They, they're getting older and then they retire and then they buy the Winnebago, which is kind of a recreational vehicle and uh, they're traveling through the US or Canada, right, with their, with their motor home and they have matching sweatsuits and they're incredibly loving and they hold hands and they look the same. But you know they're not like having hot sex in the back of that thing, you know, at <laughs> night. Or on top of it, you know, as the sun, right, the sun sets or something like that. Because that's commonality, and commonality creates resonance. And that makes it really nice to be together. But the problem is that the moment you come closer and closer and you're vibrating at the exact same frequency most of the time, you no longer have erotic friction, which requires that there's polar opposites with different ideas and with that kind of head-budding friction that makes it so it's you know, sexually interesting which is why you see two kinds of relationships as they go along. One is people who have hugely contentious relationships with lots of makeup sex. People have really nice relationships and they kind of lose sexual interest. <laughs> That's one of the way a lot of people play it. Of that is one of the ways a lot of people play it. Typically what happens is people have this amazing sex, then you know they get to know each other, they discover all these things that they have in common. That's what then makes them want to date and stay together. As they date and stay together, they might move in together or they have common friends or they start doing things together. They go away at the, at the weekend together. They have suddenly common commonalities, right? The more commonalities they have, the more likely it is that their relationship develops positively in the relationship realm. And in the relationship realm, what you want is less friction, more commonality, harmony, uh, the kind of joy and enjoyment that comes with being with somebody with whom you essentially vibe. And then, of course, when that actually is achieved, people complain that they no longer have hot sex. And then some people immediately break up because that's their highest value. Some people start cheating. Some people have misters and mistresses, and some people just give up, and then, or they just you know, complain endlessly but do nothing about it. That's also an option. Um, 
a, a well well used option, and but you could also understand that any time you want that erotic spark, you will have to behave differently than when you want harmony. It's not that hard, actually. It just never occurs to people. People somehow don't seem to understand that when you spend every evening together on the sofa watching the rerun of Bridgerton or whatever people watch these days, right, um, in, in the sweatpants, um, talking about, you know, the, the shitty boss and then the, the annoying girlfriend and that the, the dog was sick again and the kids have to go to the, you know, I was going to say the kids have to go to the vet, but you know what I mean, to the <laughs> dentist or whatever. That's not going to make you want to have sex. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing to it. And then they go on a date night and then... On the way to the date night, they talk about the bills that haven't been paid or the <laughs> dog that needs to go to the vet the next morning or whatever. It is not sexy. If you want sexy, you have to behave the way you used to behave when you were sexy. What did you do? You dressed up. You made an effort. You went somewhere where you met that person or that person picked you up. You had exciting things to talk about. You actually talked about things that weren't the bills or whatever, right? And uh, you made an effort. You didn't look at your phone every three minutes and you didn't call home three times to remind the kids to go to bed or any of those things. So if you understand the principles of what makes it exciting and enjoyable, you can enact that anytime you want, but it does take some discipline and most people get very lazy. <laughs> but here's the good news, right? The good news is that these are skills. They're not nebulous, actually. This doesn't just fall from the sky. There is a certain X factor to finding somebody with whom you connect, not only for all the imprint reasons, which are pretty horrible and mundane, um, but there's, there's also something else. There's a certain kind of a magic and there is whatever it is, right? Whatever you believe in, there is that X factor of you meet somebody and it's just good, right? That, that, that is there. But then from there, how you work with it really has a lot to do with skills. It has a lot to do with knowledge about the dynamics and it has a lot to do with self-awareness around the traps that we can fall into. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and at that point, there's just a decision to be made what is most important to you. And that's different for different people. Well, you can trust your body to, to find the hottest, sexiest dude to do that with, because mm -hmm. that's what your body's oriented towards. Mm -hmm. But this is what becomes difficult when people kind of trust one part of themselves more than others. While your body is incredibly valuable as a tool, it's not the only tool you have, right? You also have a heart that has gotten hurt on occasion. We all have. And we also have a mind that understands that certain things, while delicious, are not optimal. Otherwise, we'd all be 500 pounds stuffing ourselves with all the good foods there are, right? You can look at a bag of chips and go, not tonight. 
<laughs> yes. Well, if you're a hedonist, like with a, with a bag of chips, you'll go, I'll have the bag of chips, and then you'll either go, I don't care if I'm 500 pounds, or you go, I must counteract that tomorrow morning with some exercise, right? And so when, when it comes to, you know, bad boys, which is what you're talking about, some version of bad boys, you have to go, I'm going to have the bad boy, and then I'm going to have to do heart rehab in the morning. Bad boy reflux. Bad boy reflux, right. <laughs> Take some solid magnesium there, you know. So, yes, so that, that's the thing. There's nothing wrong with you wanting to have the cake, but then you're going to have to deal with what it takes to have the cake. Right? And so maybe that does mean you have a mister and a mister. Um, you know, maybe that means the bad boy isn't the main course. Maybe it means you have the bad boy, but you will need a solid foundation around uh, like a community of friends and girlfriends and things that are there for you for your heart rehab and uh, to counteract the reflux, right? So none of that's impossible, but it's, it is certainly something to know and examine closely. Because if you go, I'm going to trust my body when my body feels th that thing, then you, what you're saying is, I'm going to allow my body to eat whatever my body wants to eat whenever my body wants to eat it. And I don't give a shit about the consequences. Right? And then that might be okay, but then maybe your head has to say, look, there's only so much of that you can do. Do something to counteract your hedonistic ways. And then your heart will say, um, you know, I, I, I want deeper than this. And then your heart, your head, and your body can come to some kind of an accord where your body isn't always leading you down some path and that the rest of your being is bitterly regretting afterwards. No. Unless you say, fuck it, right? And that's just how you want to go. But then you can't complain about uh, the other parts. And all of that's perfectly fine. There's, n there's no wrong or right way. That's one of the very, I think, you know, uh, wonderful things about the time we're living in. There's many things that are not great about the time we're living in, but one of the things that's really good is that you essentially can choose whatever relationship, you know, configuration you want, at least in some parts of the world, not in all parts of the world. But where you live, either places you live, here or Canada, you pretty much have the options to do whatever you want within the reason of not hurting anyone else and, or it being illegal, you know. You just have to kind of have a cold, hard look at the consequences of who runs the show. Yeah, and not be delusional about that. Uh, and understand what your body wants and then square that with the rest of you. No, it doesn't necessarily mean you're unpredictable. It just means you, you stay interesting, right? And, and that's the easiest way to, 
remember this when you get to that uh, situation is if you're not interesting to yourself uh, or your partner, it's very likely going to just be same old, same old. But that does, it, it's not that difficult. And see, if you look at what people have traditionally done, um, that's a good pointer. And that's not to say we want to go back to 50s housewife and, you know, all of that stuff. But traditionally, what would happen, right? People would have friends and spend time apart. Right? That used to be a thing. And I mean, even as, as, you know, like I said, we don't want to go back to the 50s, but, you know, women having Tupperware parties or whatever the hell they used to do. But there used to be a place where women would go and hang out with their girlfriends. And there used to be a place where men would go and, I don't know, go bowling. And it's not a women-men thing necessarily, but partners would have different activities. And then that would give them a chance to kind of go away from that same, 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 have different experience, be with different people, get a slightly different imprint, come back a bit refreshed, right? It's like a palate cleanser between meals, right? Like well, the, the sorbet, right? So you have these sorbet moments in a, in a long meal where you essentially go and you cleanse your palate and then you come back and then you have something else to tell. Now you don't come home and go, did you take the trash out? It's trash day tomorrow <laughs> or garbage or whatever you call it here, right? You come back and you go, oh, I just heard, blah, blah, blah. Did you know, you know? And so suddenly you become interesting again, yeah. right? And your energy is somewhat cleansed or things like that. So that's one way. Another thing that people used to do uh, fairly reliably uh, which people still try as a means of spicing things up, different environment, right? So as we just talked, we just talked about you sit down on a meditation cushion, your body goes, that's what we're doing now, meditating. You go on hands and knees on a mat, you practice long enough, your body goes nonlinear. If you spend 90% of your time in bed working or watching TV, when, that, when you go to bed, your body goes working or watching TV. Your body doesn't go all night long lovemaking, right? It doesn't do that. So then, of course, people go to some hotel or somewhere else, and suddenly the body goes, oh, fresh, new, exciting, right? So these are all things that when you understand, you can recreate, not only for sex, but also for better sleep or things like that, where you have a bit of discipline that you don't work in your bedroom or you don't check your phone last thing before you go to bed, laying next to each other, both scrolling through the feed and things like that. That's not going to create erotic feelings. You know, not even when both people watch porn because it's still separate, right? So you, you just have to understand the dynamics of conditioning and, you know, that same old, same old, same old. So if you switch things up, chances are pretty good your body will react to the newness with a kind of erotic excitement. The thing is, there's a fine line between counteracting your patterns and selling yourself out. So 
let's just say what it sounds like to me is you're saying, I tended to be a bit clingy and needy, and I've realized that that's something I don't want to do because it's coming from an insecurity. So I'm now containing myself and I'm not um, overreaching, yeah. right? So that's really good. But that's also taking into account that you're a human being who probably wants to cuddle and have affection and have connection. So the thing to feel there is where's the line between um, having to grab onto somebody to get some confirmation for something that that person can give you and a natural touch, connection, you know, kind of closeness that comes with having a good relationship. And that's the thing to feel where you have to feel when does the not being needy become a manipulative game, either for yourself or for him, where you go, yeah, I'm not going to do that because that keeps him crazy about me. But I really actually want some of that. Or to yourself where you're going, yeah, I'm never going to be that again. I will suffer through, you know, lo lack of touch and closeness. You know, fuck them all. You know? So there's, you have to kind of feel that. And that's, it's really good to have a friend or a therapist who can kind of flag when you're going too far in the one direction or the other. And so it's good to give this guy the space to not have to deal with also his usual patterns, right, where he's kind of probably used that women get very needy and excited and then he doesn't have to really work on anything or extend himself a bit or be even available. And then he can pull back because, oh God, yeah. right? So it's good to see what happens. But of course, then if that doesn't progress into uh, a, a good, pleasant feeling relationship, then, you know, it's not sustainable, of course. Yeah. So that's always the, that's always the trick is when do you, when do you actually, you know, show healthy behavior and when are you just counteracting stuff to a point where it's also not good? Yeah, but here's the thing. Maybe if you show healthy behavior, that allows him to show healthy behavior. And if you show healthy behavior and that's not what he can do, then um, he needs to go anyway because you don't want to be in a dysfunctional relationship. So, and it's tough because of course we all want to be wanted and loved and all of that, but that's a good deciding factor. If he can be with that and it feels mutually beneficial to have different patterns, then that's wonderful. If he starts trying to manipulate you to behave the way that you used to behave, which allows him to behave the way he used to behave, then you got to bow out, ideally quickly, before you get sucked in. When to bow out of a relationship is determined, well, let me say this differently, it's later than you think and earlier than you think, right, or sooner than you think depending on how you look at it. And what I mean by that is when you think it's time to go, it's typically time to examine things. When you hang in despite the signs, 
it's typically uh, good to examine that it's probably the end. Right? So that's, that's a very unfortunate thing that happens is that um, we tend to want to leave too early if it hits that groove of, um, you know, kind of the destruction phase of, of relationship dynamics. And then on the other hand, we tend to overstay our welcome very, very often. Uh, and that those are the two gears. You know, very few people um, just end the relationship when it's run its due course. Right? So most people either fuzz out way too soon or they stay way too long. So that said, there is such a thing called irreconcilable difference. It's actually one of the things that they talk about in divorce court, right? That you cite, you cite irreconcilable differences as one of the reasons you can divorce. So what are irreconcilable differences? Well, it's when the resonance aspect of a relationship isn't achievable. And so what I mean by that is there's areas like you are describing, there's something's not, not kind of slotting in, that's an irreconcilable difference. So the easiest irreconcilable difference that most people can recognize is somebody wants a child, somebody doesn't. Right? That's, that's an easy one, and that's a, that's a deal breaker. But there's much more subtle ones, of course, where, let's say, sexual preferences or sexual um, you know, kind of behavior within the relationship, just never quite, you know, frequency, uh, preferences, or even technical, you know, like the people just can't get it together. So that's another one of those irreconcilable differences where despite best efforts and skill development, it just doesn't quite work. Another one is um, lifestyle choices that just can't be reconciled. And then more subtle but also quite deadly is when communication just can never be really reconciled. Yeah. So those are signs that you are at a point where it's probably not going to work out. But the first step is always to go, are these differences really irreconcilable? Can they be reconciled? And then some of those, you can actually learn some skills or you can learn some, um, you know, communication skills or things of that, or techniques that can straighten it out. That's always the first step is, can you straighten it out? If the answer is no, and the answer can be no because somebody doesn't want to do what it takes to straighten it out, that's a no. Or despite best efforts, it can't be straightened out then that's really, regardless of how much love and connection you have, that's the moment to kind of pull the plug because it's just at that point you're selling out. Mm. Yeah, both people are selling out because you don't get the thing that you want but you, and you don't give the, your partner what they want. Mm. That's the other thing, right? If you don't think it's right, there's a good chance they don't think it's right either. No, and then at that point, you've uh, now committed each other to, you know, uh, life in prison without parole. And it's always worth trying to figure out if those 
if they're really irreconcilable or if it's just bad skills.